Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 30, The Road to War. After the reign of Justinian the Great, the Roman Empire stagnated. Some people say Justinian was the last Roman emperor, and that every emperor who came after was a Byzantine emperor. Now for sure he was great, but unfortunately that did not transfer to his nephew. Justin II became emperor after Justinian's death in 565, and he ended up ruling for 13 years. Unfortunately, his mental resolve was not up to the task, and it is said that he went insane. Because Justinian had no male heir, the throne was passed to his nephew. But there were two nephews, and both of them were named Justin. But only one of them was in the capital during the death of the emperor. It is very fair to point out that the wrong nephew took control of the empire after Justinian's death. One was an accomplished general who was out on campaign while the other was tied up in the palace. As soon as Justinian died, his nephew seized control and stated that Justinian chose him and not his accomplished cousin. Fishy, I know, but that goes to show how important it is to be in the capital the moment the emperor dies. One of the reasons historians state that Justinian was the last Roman emperor is because he was the last native-speaking emperor. Justin II spoke very little Latin and communicated predominantly in Greek. And one important fact to keep in mind is that Justinian's conquests were very fresh and the control over the regions were not quite secure. It was going to take an accomplished ruler to hold on to these new territories, It wasn't all his fault as Justinian left him with very little money in the treasury, what with all the spending on churches and imperial architecture. So the empire on a map looked like it was at its height. But in reality, it was stretched incredibly thin with very few resources to hold it together. There were peace treaties created by Justinian with the Persians that secured the eastern frontier. But because Justin II was forced to cut costs, he stopped paying the Sassanid Empire. And this caused a lot of tension with the Persians, and ultimately set the stage for the greatest war to come. Trouble was brewing north of the Danube. It seemed the Gepids, who had defeated the Huns, were now starting to subjugate their neighbors. In 558, the Avars, a steppe tribe, and Lombards, a Germanic tribe, teamed up and defeated the Gepids, and this resulted in a treaty between the Avars, Lombards, and Justinian the Great, where the Romans would take the fortress city of Sirmium, and in exchange they would pay an annual tribute to the Avars, creating some kind of stability north of the Danube. Well, Justin II cut this tribute as well, and that not only angered the Avars because they used that gold to buy everything from food, clothes, all the necessities, etc. So now they have to take the gold from somewhere else. The resulting pressure from the Avars drove the Lombards out of their lands and they migrated west. In 568, the Lombards invaded northern Italy and settled in the Po Valley. 
and from there they conquered pretty much the entire northern part of Italy. These Lombards were German and Aryan, and they now marched upon the Pope in Rome, threatening the very Christian capital of the Western world. However, the Byzantine Romans managed to keep the once eternal city, now shambles, out of the Lombards' hands. By 572, Justin's mental health started to deteriorate. There were recorded instances of him biting people in his court, and there was a moment when he realized that he had a disorder. John of Ephesus, whose monophysite sect suffered persecutions under Justin, offered a vivid description of Justin's madness, in which he behaved like a wild animal, was wheeled about on a mobile throne, and required organ music to be played day and night. For the safety of the empire, Justin II appointed an imperial colleague as to be his legal representative. It is very obvious that Justin II turned to his wife for support and guidance, and you don't have to look any further than the coin issued under his reign. Justin and Sophia were both imprinted upon the imperial coinage and was the very first Roman coin to have the empress's face stamped on imperial currency. It's almost certain that Sophia convinced Justin to choose a trusted friend and ally of Caesar instead of a relative. This ensured that a more competent man would rule instead of a relative. This ensured a successful and peaceful transfer of power but it also ended the Justinian dynasty. It is a general understanding that Justin II was an unpopular ruler, but he did his best to refill the treasury. He just wasn't the most capable man to do the job. In 573, with all of the empire's eyes facing east towards the Persians, the Avars crossed the Danube, raiding the countryside basically unopposed. This caught the Romans completely by surprise, and they didn't have the manpower to fight them off with all of the action going on on the eastern frontier. In 574, Tiberius, acting on behalf of the emperor, paid off the Avars with 60,000 pieces of silver. The Avars accepted their tribute and halted the raids into Byzantine territory. Now, the Avars were not another invading army like the Huns. They were a tribe on the run. After the Huns collapsed in the steppe, a tribe of powerful Turks, known as the Gok Turks, came to dominate the steppe. They enslaved many tribal people, and one of those tribes was the Avars. When they came running into the Roman Empire, they were running for their lives. A Gok Turk king is said to have written to the embassy of Constantinople, angry at the alliance the Romans had made with their subjects, the Avars. The Gokturk king called the Avars nothing more than runaway slaves, and he wanted them back. The Avars would eventually evolve into the Slavic people, and if you look at a map of Slavic countries, you will see they are all right around where they settled during this period in history. The Avars weren't going anywhere. In 578, Justin II died and lost a great portion of the Italian peninsula before so. Tiberius II, Justin's friend and bodyguard, took possession of the empire and ruled for four years. There are some sources that suggest Tiberius was having an affair with Sophia, Justin II's wife. 
An important fact to note is that Tiberius was ruling long before Justin's death. He was appointed to power from Justin because he was self-aware of his mental illness. When Tiberius became full emperor, his first action was to continue paying subsidies to the Persian Empire to regain some form of peace on the eastern frontier. He also made an alliance with the Franks in the Western Empire to attack the Lombards living in Italy. Now this great alliance didn't pan out well as his general died in Italy and the Franks backed off. It feels like Tiberius was a very competent ruler who just had bad luck. However, he did have some good luck in North Africa against the Berbers, but these victories were not long-lived. In 579, Tiberius II had found enough stability in his empire to start focusing on reconquering Italy. But as he started to focus on that part of the empire, the Slavs invaded Sirmium, the land connecting the eastern and western empires. It was almost impossible for him to gain solid grounds in reuniting the Roman Empire. Tiberius built churches and other structures, but he did make sure the empire continued to move forward. In 582, someone poisoned Tiberius II while they were in the middle of a conflict with the Persians. Tiberius made sure to appoint a successor before his death, and this man was Maurice, who reigned for 20 years. It is fair to say that Maurice was great at handling foreign disputes and terrible at handling domestic disputes. This is, of course, an oversimplification, but is also very accurate. During the Nika riots, Justinian had pretty much ended the trouble caused by the Blues and Greens. But 50 years later, you have Maurice in control, and everyone had kind of gotten back into their usual manner. The faction fighting and murder caused by the Blues and Greens had regained its pre-riot numbers. It's not provable by any means, but it sure seems likely that this unchecked power of the Blues and Greens spread throughout the city of Constantinople and contributed to the widespread crime and discontent of the population. This is basically a time of large-scale crime in the capital. Maurice made a great contribution to the empire by creating a local dictator to high conflict zones in the empire. This allowed his men to rule over North Africa and Italy without having to send requests to Constantinople every time they needed to act quickly. According to the central Greenland temperature chart, the climate was in steep decline and was now colder than any period in thousands of years. The many decades that passed started to transform the breadbasket areas of North Africa into a desert, which dried up the farmland and lost many sources of income and money for the empire. This period of isolation started to create a disconnect between the popes of Rome and the patriarchs of Constantinople. Maurice spent most of his time fighting for control over the Balkans, trying to regain that territory that connected the East and Western Empire. The Slavs in this area were direct descendants of the Avar tribal people, and the Avars came from the steppe. In 586, the Persians launched another attack, this time attacking the borders of Anatolia and northern Syria. By this time, the battles became more frequent, with the entire Roman military deployed on the eastern front, 
and the entire Sassanid army constantly raiding into the empire, there seemed to be a battle every few days. The constant struggling across the frontier stretched both armies, who also suffered periodic outbreaks of the plague, which hasn't gone away yet. Eventually, this led to disagreements within the hierarchy of the Persian army, and some generals fought with other generals, until a small mutiny evolved into a looming civil war. The opposing army marched on the capital of the Persian Empire, and the standing king of kings fled in terror. He had been ousted from his throne, and now a usurper sat in his place. Nowhere in the empire was safe. The other soldiers would kill him on sight. So he fled to the only place that would take him in, the Roman Empire. In 590, the young Persian emperor Khusro II fled to Constantinople for refuge. He pleaded for Maurice to help, and Maurice gave it to him. Maurice listened to the pleas of Khusro and sent his armies east to help install him as the king of kings of the Persian Sassanid Empire. In 591, Emperor Maurice, with the council of Khusro II, fought along the borders of southern Armenia against the Persian usurper. With Khusro II advising the Romans, they were able to defeat the Persian army. In exchange for defeating the usurper and returning Khusro II to the throne, he ceded the provinces of Armenia and Georgia to the Byzantine Empire. For the first time, these two great superpowers became allies, and with neither side having to pay tribute to the other, it looked like peace had finally made it to the region. The treaty that was signed afterwards was called the Eternal Peace, which was obviously poorly named. Unfortunately, this peace was only meant to last as long as Maurice did, and not as long as Khusro. Because Khusro was also young and ambitious, while Maurice was already in his 50s. However, this time of peace did allow Emperor Maurice to turn his attention back to the Danube. In 593, Emperor Maurice marched his armies north and finally subdued the Avars and other Germanic tribes that were causing him grief. The constant raids were tearing his northern provinces apart, and now he could actually do something about it. It didn't take long to bring them all to heel with the full might of the empire. In 597, Maurice fell very ill, and he started to draw up plans for his succession. But Maurice quickly recovered, and his plan was scrapped. Maurice was a brilliant general and wrote the Strategicon, which is the guide to warfare, that acted as a rule book for future emperors. It dictated many useful guides to future rulers, how to maintain control over the empire, including tidbits such as replacing untrustworthy mercenaries with local peasants, as well as attacking the Slavs in winter instead of spring and summer. He knew that there was no way to hold on to the territory gained north of the Danube if they returned home every winter. So he ordered his soldiers to remain in enemy territory over the winter season. This move made the soldiers very angry, but also made a lot of sense. This was very unusual for Byzantine forces, and of course, as soon as someone starts doing something right for a change, people start complaining. This led a general named Phocas 
to rally his cold and miserable soldiers back to Constantinople for the winter against Emperor Maurice's orders. Focus' plan was to march on the capital and place one of his sons, that's Maurice's son, not Focus's son, on the throne. However, the Blues and Greens united under the crackdown of Maurice's government and fought against the emperor in the streets. The Roman senators were keen to see the new emperor go and decide to support the riots against Maurice. Before Focus could get to the capital, the rioters killed Maurice and all of his sons. In 602, when Focus arrived in the capital, the senators proclaimed him the Roman emperor. One of Maurice's biggest allies, the king of kings, Khusro II, who only ruled because Maurice helped him get his throne back, now looked at the new Roman emperor as a usurper who killed his friend and ally. It's very easy to look at history as an unstoppable machine full of nations and states, and it's easy to take the personal moments out of it. The largest war the Persians and Romans will ever fight started because of one man trying to bring justice to those who murdered his friend. Or maybe... Khusro just wanted an excuse to go to war. Or perhaps it's both. Emperor Phocas was a terrible emperor. He had no real support, and those who did fought amongst themselves. The king of kings, Khusro II, saw an opportunity to strike at the Roman Empire while they were weak. Invading the Roman Empire to depose an illegitimate usurper might have been his legal reason for going to war. But Khusro was trying to strengthen his position in the region and take back some of the lands lost several decades before. It's important to note that Khusro II is only 32 years old and extremely ambitious. It is said by some sources that Khusro had one of Maurice's surviving sons in his court and would parade him around the Byzantine troops as the rightful heir to the throne, convincing many Roman legions to surrender to the Persians. Taking many strongholds early in the war, as well as help show in good faith Khusro's efforts to restoring the proper lineage to the throne. Khusro II would tell the people that he was doing for Maurice's son what Maurice had done for him. There were a lot of Romans who refused to fight the heir of Maurice, and entire cities ended up handing themselves over willingly to the Persians. Theodosius, the son of Emperor Maurice, and Khusro's reason for starting this entire war eventually died. And with it, a lot of his claims died too. However, Khusro would later find someone else and claim it was the bastard love child of Theodosius and a Persian noblewoman. However, not as many people fell for this one. In 605, Phocas sent an army east to deal with the Persians and take back the land they had just lost. However, the army was defeated by the Sassanids and the survivors returned to the capital in shame. Phocas was never able to establish legitimacy in this empire, and that left him open to attacks from many different fronts. Due to so many conspiracies to overthrow Phocas, he was forced to execute many noblemen and noblewomen from the house of Maurice and Justinian, making himself very unpopular amongst the aristocrats. With chaos growing in the capital, Focus' second-in-command asked one of his friends, a general from North Africa, to intervene. 
In 608, Heraclius and his son, by the same name, began to seize power from within the empire, starting with Egypt and North Africa. It is ultimately Heraclius the Younger who would become emperor. The strongest thing the two Heraclius had going for them was their clear line of succession. As with all great empires and kingdoms, the line of succession was very important, and Phocas had no children and was already in his mid-fifties, whereas Heraclius was a strong general and great administrator and had a young ambitious son in his early thirties. There was no legitimacy in either Phocas or Heraclius, but at least Heraclius had a son and a clear line of succession. In 609, Heraclius' cousin Nicetas led an army from Carthage into Egypt and defeated the local governor. This cut all grain supplies from Egypt to Constantinople, really putting pressure on the emperor. This was the last thing Phocas needed. With the Persians already attacking him from the east, the emperor was forced to withdraw troops and send them into Egypt. This weakened the Romans on every front, but most importantly made Phocas look terribly weak in the eyes of the empire. Taking advantage of the chaos, Cusro II raided deep into Anatolia, stripping most of land away from the empire and pillaging all of the wealthy cities. He got as far as Bithynia, which is right on the doorstep to Constantinople. Knowing the time was right, Heraclius traveled with his navy from Sicily to Constantinople. He had also managed to strike a deal with the son-in-law of Phocas, Priscus, who just so happened to be the head of the Excubitors. Priscus agreed to support Heraclius, the younger's claim, to the throne when he landed in Constantinople. In 610 CE, Heraclius landed in the port and waited in his ship. He didn't want to march through the streets like a usurper, so instead he waited with patience. The people of Constantinople rallied against Phocas, and the emperor was placed under arrest and handed over to Heraclius on March 5th, 610 CE. Phocas was thrown upon the deck of Heraclius' ship, bound and chained. After taunting Phocas, Heraclius swung his sword and chopped the head off the emperor. The revolution had succeeded without any bloodshed, other than the emperor's and all the people who died in Egypt. So now Heraclius wore the purple and was emperor of the Romans. Heraclius was the third emperor in a row to be a usurper, and he knew his vulnerabilities. He needed to be popular with the people of the capital, as well as make sure he had a clear line of succession. He attended church regularly to show to the people that he was just as part of the community as they were. He also had a lot of church gold melted down to fund the war effort, despite it being very unpopular. Heraclius might have succeeded in taking the throne, however it came at great costs. With the greatest war raging in the east, Heraclius forced the army to retreat from the front lines and deal with the loss of Egypt and Sicily. The gains made by the Persians in this period were a direct result from Heraclius' coup. Even though Heraclius will soon be seen as the hero of the Great War, he forced the empire to divert a lot of resources when they needed them the most, and ultimately it was the borders of the Balkans that suffered. Later in 610, Heraclius married his first wife, and she took the name Eudokia. 
and together they celebrate their coronation as emperor and empress. With Focus the usurper now dead, there was no reason for Cusro to continue this war against the Romans. However, the momentum had already started to move the Persians east, and there was nothing stopping them now. The dream of reclaiming the land lost to the Greeks over a thousand years before, and restoring the glory of the great Persian Empire was too strong. Khosrow was going to take it all. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.